Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is George P. Schultz, the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is How to Think About Energy and the Climate, and it was recorded on March 16, 2015. Just a word about the piece that's in front of you and from the Washington Post. It was from yesterday's Washington Post. It's kind of interesting how that happened. A whole bunch of journalists and editorial page writers came to Hoover for a couple of days. They sat around in our Annenberg conference room and we came serially and talked and answered questions and had a conversation with them. And after my session, the man who was the editorial page editor for the Washington Post came and said, would you do an op-ed along the lines that you talked for the Washington Post? He said, you're always writing for the Wall Street Journal. Why don't you send something to the Post? So I said, okay. And that's where that came from. Then you can see from the back of it, apparently he took the occasion to have a whole editorial page on the subject, some taking different points of view. But at any rate, it's an interesting outcome of a fairly new thing at Hoover and bringing a lot of people together and having conversations, stimulating good people. I'm going to talk about energy, but I want to put it into a context. I look around and I see everywhere in the world people have access to information easily. We're in an information age, and anybody can find out almost anything with no trouble. And we're in a communication age. Everybody has cell phones. They can talk to each other. They can organize, and they do. So I think the problem of governance has been made much more difficult, because you have to pay attention to these diverse elements. It leads to a kind of fragmentation but a great deal of frustration on the part of many governments because they just don't know how to do it. They try to deal with diversity by homogenizing it or stamping it out, as the Europeans are trying to do, and it doesn't work. So just as governments are struggling, there are issues arising that are really threats to our existence that only can be dealt with effectively by international accords of some sort. So let me just identify a couple of them and then come to energy and climate, which is one of them. I think the world is really threatened by the new emergence of nuclear weaponry. We had a period <clears throat> following Ronald Reagan's efforts to reduce the numbers of nuclear weapons where we had them coming down. And at Hoover, we had a major project that Sid Drell and I worked on, and we had, you may have seen the edits, we wrote Henry Kissinger, Bill Perry, and Sam Nunn, and I wrote on the subject. And it was great resonance of those things all over the world. A book was written about it called The Partnership. <clears throat> and we seem to be going. The number of nuclear weapons in the world today is a third of what it was at the time of Reykjavik. But there has been a shift in the last few years, a very unfortunate one, where the problem now is proliferation. 
We have always held that as long as there are nuclear weapons, the United States must have a, an arsenal that's adequate and secure and safe. So we don't have any question in our minds about that, our stance. But nevertheless, Iran obviously wants to get a nuclear weapon. There will be proliferation in the Middle East when that happens, if it happens. So you have more people with weapons, you have more fissile material lying around. It's the fissile material that's the hard part in getting a nuclear weapon. The art and knowledge to convert that into a weapon has shrunk. So <clears throat> that's a real threat. And it's also clearly this case that if there's an exchange of nuclear weapons, say between India and Pakistan, they're not the only countries affected. It creates a change in the atmosphere generally and predictably will be very tough. So that's an existential threat. We're working at it at Hoover. We have a book about to be published called The War That Must Never Be Fought. We have another very interesting book. In our conference we had about Andrei Sakharov. It was fantastic. He was the great scientist. The guy who stood up to the regime, got sent to Gorky in exile, was a human rights activist, got a Nobel Prize for that. So he had all these wonderful attributes. At this conference, we had two bishops, and we had two retired four-stars, Robert Hoover, who were real warriors. One of them, Jim Mattis, four-star Marine, is known as Fighting Jim. And so the interplay was really interesting. That is now ready to go to the press. So we keep working at this issue at Hoover, but it's uh, an uphill struggle right now. Then there is the problem of a rewrite of the rules that's going on. Russia is basically attacking the state system, the system that says the world is, the states in the world, they have borders, they have sovereign rights, and that's who interacts. Putin and Russia is trying to change it to a sphere of influence type world, which will have very different characteristics. And at the same time, ISIS declares that they don't believe in countries. They believe in a caliphate, which says everybody should live according to certain rules, and anybody who doesn't should be killed. And they're having, a, they're having much more success than you'd like to see them have. We had the man who heads the armed forces at Pakistan came to Hoover the other day, and we sat around with him, a few of us. It was obvious he was more worried about terrorism than he was about India. And he was particularly worried about ISIS because ISIS was implanting itself in Pakistan. So those are threats. But I think it's also true that the prospect of a warming climate is a big threat. And it's a difficult one because it's hard to know exactly what to do. It's controversial. And it's hard to see how you're going to get all the world to collaborate. But we're working at it. We have an energy task force at Hoover that Tom Stevenson, who's here, and I co-chair. Tom puts up the resources, but he also gives us his brain power and experience and comes an active part of what we do. We have 
lots of research going on at Stanford on all kinds of energy things. I chair the MIT Advisory Board on Energy, so I see what all these scientists are doing. And a few years ago, we brought to our conference room at Hoover 12 MIT scientists. They were joined by the same number of scientists, Stanford ones, and we had one from Berkeley and one from Livermore. We spent two days talking about game-changing technologies. Then we had a return visit to MIT and recently reproduced a book that Barb Armstrong at MIT and I coached, authored, or edited, called Game Changers. So we're trying to study what's going on, and Hoover is very much involved in it. <clears throat> so I thought what I'd do is tell a few stories about my own involvement in energy and how my thinking evolved as a result of things that I took part in over the years. Tell a story. At one time, I was, when I was in office, President <coughs> Reagan assigned me the job of announcing and explaining a reasonably important foreign policy decision he'd made. So I wrote it out very carefully. I brought it over to him, one of our private meetings. I said, you take a look at this. I'm going to be sure it's right. He leaped through it. He put it down. He said, perfect. It was a dead silence. There's a question if I was doing it, I wouldn't do it this way. So he picked it up, flipped it open at random. It was covered with edits in one place he wrote story. And I saw he had personalized it because he said, I give a speech to people who are in front of me. That's different. And then there was a story. I said, what's the story about? He said, well, that's the most important point on this page. And it's not enough to get things across into people's heads. You've got to get it into their gut. Then they realize what you're talking about. And the way to get it into their gut is to tell them a story that they can relate to. So I'm trying to take a page out of that book and tell some stories about what happened to me. Back in 1969, <clears throat> I'm Secretary of Labor. And the president makes me the chairman of a cabinet task force on the oil import program. At that time, we had a quota system of 20%. Because President Reagan had thought, President Eisenhower had thought that if we imported more than 20% of the oil we use, we were asking for trouble in national security terms. But that was it. And we were getting so we were going to bump up against it. That's why my task force was formed. We had, I, I think, here I am, Secretary of Labor. I got the Secretary of Treasury on my thing, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State. Everybody's working for me, pretty good. But uh, anyway, we, we concocted a way of approaching that worked well. As far as I know, nobody has ever done it before or since. But let me describe it to you. Instead of having hearings and spending a lot of money on that, we, we thought carefully, and we published in the Federal Register. We said, here are the questions that we, we want to see answered. And anybody who wants to answer them, send in your papers. So we got wonderful responses to that. And some people said, well, they'd like to come and talk to you. We said, fine. There's a note taker there. Notes will be taken on whatever is said. They'll go on the public record like all the other submissions. And we had a rebuttal round. Anybody could come and 
challenge something that was on the record. So we had an open arrangement. Anybody could participate who wanted to. And it turned out to be as rich a set of data and experiences and materials as I think anybody's ever had. And nobody could say we were favoring this or that because it was an open thing entirely. And it worked well. So if you ever get asked to do a big public thing, remember that. Anyway, we recommended things that we thought were perfectly obvious. First of all, we said, the problem is not military. The problem is that there's all this tension between the Israelis and the Arabs. And sooner or later, something may happen. And then the flow of oil from the Middle East will get cut off. And that's a big part of it. So we should restrict our imports from that region. We ought to develop some reserves, strategic reserves here, just oil there in inventory waiting. Then we thought we should change the system from a quota to a tariff system so the US government collected the rents instead of Saudi Arabia or whoever collects the rent. And we said, you know, we know more about this subject by far than anybody else in the government. And oil and energy are strategic matters. Shouldn't there be somebody in the government paying attention? <clears throat> there was no energy department. <clears throat> a few other things. Anyway, the report was published. The president patted me on the head, said, thank you, wonderful report. There were congressional hearings. Nothing was done, nothing. And it gradually dawned on me how hard it is to get action on the basis of a strategic analysis, even though you see how obvious the things are that you're recommending. So that lesson stuck with me. Then I become director of the budget. And the president signs the legislation that creates the EPA. And when a new agency is created in the government, they get space and they get people from other places in order to get started. But there's nobody to speak for them, so they get the, the worst space and the worst people. So OMB speaks for them. So I become the spokesman. And we're pretty good because OMB knows where the bodies are buried, and nobody wants to mess with us because we're in charge of the budget. So we help them get going. And it was fascinating to me that a lot of these bright young people that worked for me on the oil import control came over and they were excited about this and they wanted to work in the new EPA. And I kept saying, why? And they said, well, here, let me give you examples of environmental problems that are easy to identify and easy to fix. You just have to get at it. And so I got a little environmental in, in me as a result of that. Then I get moved on to be Secretary of the Treasury. And I'm hardly there, but what? <coughs> we have the Arab oil boycott. We had resupplied the Israelis in the 73 war. The British and French would not lose, let us use their ports or airports in, re, re, in our resupply efforts. So we got boycott, they didn't. It was very clear what was going on. And it was horrendous because a lot of uh, electricity was produced by oil in those days. Christmas lights were basically prohibited. 
gas stations. Some of you remember gas stations are closed on weekends. It was a big turmoil in our economy. It was a threat to national defense. It was all there. So as this happened, it was a big event. So we were able to put change to a tariff system. We were able to get a reserves. We were able to change our pattern. And a lot of the same, practically everything in our recommendations were put into effect. And they worked. And it gave me another lesson, namely, that when the moment comes, if you're ready, you can get something done. But too often an opportunity comes and you're not ready and nothing happens. So at least we had that move together. So that's uh, one incident that from which I came away thinking, you're going to talk about energy, you've got to think about economics, you've got to think about security, and you've got to think about the environment. I look at this Keystone Pipeline controversy, and I say, hey, that is oil that does not go through the Strait of Hormuz. It's a no-brainer. Come on, get with it, let's go. It's secure oil. And everybody remember back 73? I do. So anyway, that's uh, that lesson. <clears throat> then, in the mid-1980s, I'm Secretary of State, and we start hearing that there are a lot of scientists who think the ozone layer is depleting. There are some who doubt it. But they all agree that if it happens, it's a catastrophe. So President Reagan did something so unlike what goes on today. What goes on today, suppose that were today, what would happen? The president would vilify the people who were doubters, hold them up to ridicule, call them un-American, and so on. Not Ronald Reagan, he put his arm around them and said, look, let's work together on an insurance policy. You agree it would be a catastrophe. So you don't have to agree, but you can agree on a catastrophe. So let's get behind this. So his instinct was entirely different. Bring people together. That's called governance. Doesn't, we don't do that anymore. Don't do governance anymore. So basically, when it became clear that something, it was an important problem here and something was going to be done, the entrepreneurial juices turn on and the DuPont company came up with something you could do that was relatively inexpensive and easy to do, buy it from them, and it would deal with the problem. So we were able to get that around and get it into place. I say it's much, more better, much better to do something than aspire to something. When people say, I aspire to do something by 2050, I say, so what, never, never land. What do you do today? So this was something you could do. And it was the basis for what became called the Montreal Protocol. Didn't have any trouble getting it ratified in the Congress because we had had the consultation all along. We always had the motto in the Reagan period, if you want me with you on the landing, include me in the takeoff. Pretty simple. Anyway. It turned out, in retrospect, that the scientists who were worried were right, and the Montreal Protocol came along just in time. So now, 
we're facing this problem. In my paper, I outlined some aspects of it. There is science. Somehow people are put off a little by science and models and whatnot. I'm impressed with the science. But I find it even more impressive just to look at things. What do you see going on? It's just factual material. So that article that you have has got factual material that I think is quite persuasive that the world is getting warmer. And also some factual material that is pretty persuasive that carbon has something to do with it. So I am advocating a <coughs> two-part program, which should be easy to adopt. In the first place, let's have significant sustained support for energy R&D. This is being very productive. I told you earlier about the uh, Game Changer book that we put out and that worked with MIT. We took our act to Washington at one point. We went around and I got John Boehner to set us up with the House Republicans on the Energy Committee. And John actually came and sat for the whole thing. And we had a couple of good scientists, one from MIT, one from Stanford, and a few other people there. Selling R&D to that group was a piece of cake. The minute, however, the government wants to go into business, say, oh, here's a good idea, now the government will get behind it, you lose everybody, and me too. Say, look, if we can come up with a good idea that is operational and scalable at a profit, we can find businesses that will grab it and run with it. And they're much better than the government at it. They know how to commercialize things and they know how to scale things. That's what they do. So at Stanford and MIT both, the amount of private money is about three times the government money. Because energy companies and big energy losers, users, want to know what's going on. So if something happens and they see it, they can be part of it. And at Stanford, where a lot of universities get nervous about having business people around. At Stanford, we figure, what the hell? Silicon Valley sets a big Stanford spinoff, so we're pretty relaxed about them. We know these guys. So that can work. And real progress has been made. Uh, solar wind is cost competitive now. And I've listened to some good scientists in the presence of other good scientists who are challenging them. And I'm convinced that we are, before long, going to find a way toward long-term storage of electricity. And that is a giant breakthrough. Because it tends to take the intermittency problem out of wind and solar. And also, we have to remember our grid is very vulnerable to natural events or cyber attacks. So it's of considerable importance to us as a national security matter to have energy stored and present where you use it. So that's an important development. So I say let's support energy R&D. 
In the federal budget, you, you, it's almost lost in the rounding error. Not that, not that big an amount. And then I think we should say, let all forms of energy be on a level playing field so that since carbon is a cost, a form of energy that produces carbon should bear that cost in relation to a form of energy that doesn't produce carbon. So I would propose a revenue neutral carbon tax. Start small, but have a legislated increase to a significant number. I might say British Columbia has such a system and it seems to be working pretty well. And the BC income per capita during the time it's been effect is slightly stronger than Canada as a whole, so you can't say that it's harmful to uh, the economy. In their case, and in the case of my proposal, I would make this tax revenue neutral. That is, whatever amount of money is collected gets returned to the taxpayers and there are various ways in which that could be done. So you don't have a fiscal drag from it and you don't have a pot of money sitting there for a politician to grab and use for his favorite project. I might say parenthetically that the cap and trade system that California has right now produces quite a lot of money and the governor has grabbed it and is using it to finance his high-speed rail project, which he couldn't get financed any other way. But, you know, projects should stand up on their merits and this is the use of funds that are just happen to be there in a way that you couldn't get otherwise. I think it's a bad thing. So that's um, the problem. The rising heat is posing more and more of a problem and that will accelerate and we should start doing something about it as soon as we can and I've told you what I think. So that's all there is. There ain't no more. The end. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Chris Dower. Thank you for listening.